Okay, so first by way of introduction to this book as we get into it, this is from the prophet Malachi. His word actually, the name Malachi means messenger, so really it is the word of God's messenger. Some have thought because of that that maybe Malachi didn't write this book. As far as we can tell, he did. That seems to be the best way to take things. He, this is the last book in our Old Testament, which even though our Old Testament, it's not written chronologically, it's done by genre, so you have um, Pentateuch, history, wisdom, prophets, but this actually probably is the last book chronologically. It's the last prophet to prophesy before the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Christ. And after Malachi's prophecy, there's over 400 years of silence where there's no prophetic revelation from the Lord to Israel. So this is kind of like the last thing God says to Israel before Christ comes. And historically, this is at an interesting point too. So we have Israel, they've had their kingdoms, and in the line of kings, they're totally unfaithful to God, and they both get judged. The northern kingdom gets kind of intermeshed and taken over by the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom, as is prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're exiled, taken away to Babylon for 70 years. But then we have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have the story of how those exiles in Babylon are returned to the land of Israel. They're returned to the kingdom. And Malachi is prophesying towards the end of this story. So what had happened is with Ezra, they came back and they rebuilt the temple. And the people were really discouraged that the temple was not near as beautiful and glorious as the first one. And they have all these troubles, so they end up building walls under Nehemiah to protect the city. And the heart is kind of, the place the people are at when Malachi comes is that they were super excited to get back to the land. This is God's promises being fulfilled. Super excited to rebuild the temple, but then majorly disappointed that they didn't have the former glory. They had the temple. It wasn't as beautiful as the old temple. They were back in their land, but they were still under Persian rule. They were still basically a conquered people, even though they were allowed the land. So it's really a time of disillusionment and a time of discouragement for the people. And as opposed to before the exile, this isn't a time of rife idolatry where they're worshiping Baal and the Asherah. This is a time of like proper religion, but it's formal religion. The people are just going through the motions, kind of like, is this all God has for us? I guess we'll keep the status quo. And the theme of this book is really about the fear of the Lord. And this is really interesting, but the number one term, almost the only term used for God in this book, is Lord of hosts, which is the Hebrew Jehovah Sabaoth which means the God of armies, technically. The God of heavenly armies, the God who commands all angels, the God who commands the nations, the God who commands the elements of the universe. The term Lord of hosts is referring to God's being exalted over all things. Uh, that's why the NIV translates it as just God Almighty. So the, when we're talking about the Lord of hosts in this book, it's a mighty, majestic Lord who deserves to be feared. So as we look at this book, the main idea I want us to have in our minds is that of, so the fear of God, I think we can really summarize it as this. It's taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. 
Um, how serious are we about the things of God? And there's different sections Malachi goes through and basically shows all these different things of religious life that the people aren't taking seriously. They aren't obeying God in. And it's a call to renewed obedience. So things like, we're going to see a call to take God's election seriously. To take God's worship seriously. A call to take marriage seriously. A call to take giving to the church seriously. A call to take justice seriously. A call to take pastoral teaching seriously. And a call to take the coming of Christ seriously. And I think the relevance for us is that this is in a lot of ways our day. We live in a nation that at one time there was this idea of like we are the light to the world, but we're seeing the light of the gospel is um, increasingly somewhat dark and it's easy to be discouraged about the state of the church, the state of what Christianity is in our day. And it's really easy, I think especially here, to fall in this trap of formalism. That we feel like, you know, we generally are good people, generally follow God, generally do all these things. But to what extent are we really serious about the lives God has called us to live? How serious are we about who God is to us and what he requires of us? So that's what we're looking at here. Uh, the call to take God seriously. And just a reminder for anyone's new to the class, uh, you're allowed to interrupt me at any point. Uh, if you have a comment or a question, whatever it may be, uh, you're fully welcome to do so. Uh, so let's look at this, uh, starting at the beginning. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So basically announcing, this is not just my words. This is from God. This is the burden he's given me to his messenger for you. And uh, just a note on the formatting here. This is kind of written as a dialogue between the people and God. So if it's the people talking to God, that's in bold italics. And if it's God kind of giving a speech, that's underlined. So all the underlined parts are kind of God's speeches to the people. So it starts off, God says, I have loved you. This is what he's telling the people. Um, and the people respond to God and say, in what way have you loved us? There's kind of this attitude of what have you done for me lately? Um, God, how have you loved us? We're still under Persian rule. We don't have the glory and power we used to have. How have you shown us love in our life? Things are hard. Things are difficult. How have you loved us? And it's really interesting where God goes in telling the people how he's loved them. He says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So he talks immediately about the doctrine of election. Not necessarily the first place we would all think of to go when trying to prove uh, to the church God's love for them. But this idea is what he's getting at here is Jacob and Esau were brothers and Esau was the older, naturally deserving of the blessing and inheritance. Yet God chooses to bless and give the inheritance to Jacob the younger. And he did this when they were babies before Jacob had done anything to deserve God's blessing, God blessed him because he chose to bless him. God chose to make him a special object of his love. And this is the idea Paul goes to in Romans 9, where we have the most detailed doctrine of election in Scripture. It goes to this idea. And this word hated here gives people uh, problems at times. Uh, what it literally means is actually to love less. So 
you could say, uh, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I have not loved in this way that I've loved Jacob. So by comparison, there's like a hatred that's juxtaposed. But really what it is, it's not God specially directing Esau in an evil way. Um, I know Paul Washer says it this way. He, he says, God let Esau be Esau. He let Esau walk in the course of his lusts, in the course of his own heart, and Esau reaped the benefit or the whatever, a negative benefit uh, from that. Just kind of like in Romans 1 where it says, God, if he's wrathful against the people, he gives them over to their own lusts and they end up destroying themselves. And he says, uh, I've laid waste his mountains and his heritage. What this is talking about is just as Nebuchadnezzar came in and uh, destroyed Jerusalem and exiled uh, the people of Israel, the same thing happened to the people of Edom. The people of Edom are Esau's descendants. And Edom also was uh, taken and their land and such was destroyed. So that's what this is referring to, how Edom was laid waste. And now Edom sees Israel coming back to the land and receiving something of what they used to have. And so they say the same thing. Verse 4, Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Just like Israel, we're going to come back and become powerful and strong again. But thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called a territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. So God's saying, even if Edom comes and tries to rebuild their kingdom, they're never going to have a lasting kingdom. They're never going to regain power. Whereas on the other hand, Jacob does receive a lasting kingdom inheritance and he does receive a lasting possession even to this day there is a people of Israel and there is no more people of Edom and what's interesting here is you think of it like Edom was allowed to survive alongside Israel for 1200 years and so throughout that whole time the people could have easily said why have you allowed Edom to prosper like us why didn't you squash Edom at the beginning but God's bringing up this election and the end result of it now will be that Edom never gets to rebuild and this is kind of the same idea as Asaph in Psalm 73. This idea of what do we think when the wicked prosper? Is God not blessing us? But his conclusion there is that I, at the end I realize what their end is. That in the end they will be destroyed. In the end they will be set in slippery places. So when we struggle thinking about God, how have you shown me your love? When there's people who don't follow you, who try to obey you, who get the promotion that I wanted. Or who seem to have greater joy in their life in some ways than I do, we have to remember at the end of all things that God's love to us is finally shown in redemption through Jesus Christ and an eternity of hope and glory with him. We have to think in a bigger picture of what God's choosing of his people for salvation means, that he has a glorious end and a glorious hope for them. And he says, your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. As God exalts and chooses his people, God's praises will spread throughout the whole nation to the border of Israel. So that's taking God's election seriously, that God has chosen Jacob and he will love them and be faithful to him. And the people need to trust that. So to take God's election seriously. Any comments or questions about that? Okay, that's the first part there. Uh, seriousness there. Second, it'll be taking God's worship seriously. Starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, 
where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord. So God picks two positions of authority here to describe how his people ought to relate to him. That of a father and that of a master. Or probably easier to think of that as an employer. And it's an interesting combination of what the fear of the Lord really ought to be like. The Puritans often called it the, the, the filial fear. That we are not to have a slavish fear, but a childlike fear. So a filial fear, a childlike fear, and reverence towards God. So reverencing him as our Lord, but having that warmth of a father. And that's what we always have to keep in mind when we go to God, is that we're going to our father who's in heaven. We always have that intimacy and that um, transcendence at the same time when we approach God. But he's saying, you guys have given me neither of these. You haven't given me the honor of a father. You haven't given me the respect of a Lord. They're giving neither. And so, like, if you parents have your children, the two of the main ways uh, they disobey in this way is um, disrespect and disobedience. So disrespect is not honoring your authority. And then disobedience is not giving heed to your voice. You can almost like a eye-rolling and eye-pleasing. And our Malachi is saying, or God saying to the people of Israel, this is how you've treated me. You basically roll your eyes at me. You don't care. You'll do the least possible to kind of keep the formal image up, but you really don't care about what I say. You really don't honor me. And this is going to lead into the whole rest of this discussion here. He says, to you priests who despise my name, Lots of, lots of heavy charge from God against the religious leaders. You despise my name. And they respond, in what way have we despised your name? And here's what God tells them they do. You offer defiled food on my altar. That is, this is talking about sacrifices. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? They're trying to defend themselves here because they still are offering sacrifices. They're still doing the right religious duties. But God says, it's by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. So do you remember how I said they have this new temple that wasn't as glorious as the old? They have contempt for it. And they're like, this temple's not that great. Why would we seek to give God really great service and really great work? It's contemptible. This isn't worthy. It's an ugly little altar instead of a glorious altar. But here's how God shows them they despise his uh, table and they hold his altar in contempt. He says... Verse 8, when, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Uh, this is a scathing critique, and I think it comes to us in a lot of ways too. So they think they're in the clear because they are offering sacrifices to God. But he says, you're offering the blind, blind animals as a sacrifice. You're offering lame and sick animals as a sacrifice. And God calls this evil because the law required that they were to give the best of the flock. They had to give healthy animals. They were not allowed to give the blind, the lame, the sick, because that was giving God something not worthy of what he was due. God deserves the best. And he and far, he calls it evil, actually evil to give something that's half-baked, something that's right but not quite right. And he says, 
you know, would you give these animals to your governor? If your governor was coming to visit, would you offer these terrible animals to him, but yet you give it to God? And I think this hits us right at our worship, at how often when we're called to bring a sacrifice of praise to God, whether by ourselves or especially in our corporate worship, how often do we bring God uh, lame worship, as it were? How often do we give God kind of our half best? We give God half of our attention, and we're okay with being somewhat distracted when his word is being preached. We're okay with kind of singing half-heartedly, not really being aware of what we're singing. But God requires our best. And what's difficult about this idea is that we feel like it's better to give God something than nothing. Well, at least I'm in church. Uh, God should be pretty happy about that. At least I'm moving my lips when I'm singing. It's okay that I'm not really engaging my heart in it. And that actually shouldn't be an option for the Christian. And I know that feels hard to accept. And I remember talking to my pastor a couple years ago about this, that to go through the motions without the heart engaged is not better. That's literally what the Pharisees did, who Jesus condemned. So we almost, in our own minds, need to get rid of the option that we can come to God with half a heart. We have to be like, and it's not an option to not come to him at all. We have to go to God with our full hearts, with our full attention, with our full passion. Why? Because that's what he deserves. It's a matter of justice. We owe God the best that we have. And it's not that uh, God will only be satisfied with perfection from us. Uh, they never would have raised an entirely perfect animal, but they were called to give the best that they had. And I think for each one of us, we know what it is to give God our best versus not giving him our best. In the uh, same way that he knows our best, right? Yes. He knows. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, what does it, we know when we're really paying attention versus when we're not. We know when we're really singing to God versus when we're really not. Um, and this uh, example he gives of the governor um, how would we sing if we knew like we were singing for a very important person and you were even called to give a solo? How hard would you work and just want to sing it well and engagedly? <laughs> or even to listen to God's word preached. How much more closely would we listen if we were at the doctor receiving a diagnosis or instructions? We listen with rapt attention in so many scenarios, but yet, like, ah, oh, it's okay if my mind wanders during this sermon. Uh, I've probably heard it before. But it's a matter of honoring God's word. It's a matter of, matter of honoring God's worship. Uh, and this is fearing God. It's taking his worship seriously. That this is a serious thing and an important and weighty thing that we come to worship God. And we ought to do all we can to give God our best. Any, any thoughts on that? I know that's an uh, intense thing in some ways. I have a question as a father of small children. Like, I often, like, some of the most discouraging moments, like, in church are, like, just that. Like, mm -hmm. the feeling that I can't give rapt attention to what's going on because of children. I don't know, do you have a good word for that? Like, I mean, even, like, yeah. I have two, two kids at home sick today, and my wife's yeah. not with me, and it's like, oh, shoot, like, yeah. it feels sort of half-baked. yeah. Yeah, I guess my, my one thought um, would just be, like, what is your best in that season of life? And, like, what is the best that you're able to give? Um, I don't know, does anyone that's actually had kids experience with this have any thoughts for Brian there? One of the great, great things is that you're coming. Because there are plenty that say it's not worth it, you know, to, 
to get the kids up and struggle through that whole Sunday morning process or whatever. And yeah. So even that is a part of I think, when you commit your way to being there and showing them that, because you're leading them by your example as well. And that gives God glory. Well, and it's like you just said too, it's not about being perfect. Right. The fact that you're here with the children in service. I mean, God understands your heart between of why you're here. It's not like you're just going through the motions. We all at one point had small kids and it's I mean, like she said, you're setting an example. There is like there is a really that feeling though of, you know, like going through the motions. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm it's more difficult to be here. Mm -hmm. And it's more difficult to pay attention to the sermon, like when you're with little kids. So like, it does kind of like feel like it's easy for me to feel convicted over something mm -hmm. like that. Like just yeah. like you said, like showing up and kind of just like, oh, I'm listening. Like, oh, Sebastian, like stop jumping up and down. <laughs> I don't know. But you brought the two that weren't sick with you too. You could have just as easily left the two at home with moms, and she was home with the kids. And I think if you have conviction of that, I think that shows that you are giving the best effort. Because if you didn't, then I'd say, yeah, this is kind of going through the motions. As when we had little ones, we would try to do everything we could to get everybody to church. As we got older, we started to say, wait a minute, it's okay. If someone's sick, stay home. And we tried to give ourselves more freedom in that. And I was thinking of it more in those days of freedom or grace or something like that. Not in terms of this, which is, wait, that's not your best. Don't give God to you. Don't do it because it's not your best. So that's one thing I'd say is, as we grew, we decided, wait, let's, we, need, we need to turn our dial more towards if they're sick, don't come. Um, the other is we had to grow in, if we walked into church, we had four kids, we used to give four. Yeah. That when we when they were all little, it was like it needs to be mom, dad, mom, and four kids. It needs to be that way. We're a family. And as we grew, it became more. It's okay if this one says I need to go be, be over there with my friend. It's okay if this older person says, you know what? Let me have this one sit with me today. And it became, because they don't have any kids, and it became easier for us to be able to worship. I feel very built up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, like, what is our best in different seasons, you know? And some people, if you have uh, physical troubles, like, it might be a season where it's harder to give perfectly clear attention or to maybe you have a time where you can't sing, your voice is lost, you know? So uh, having grace that to give God our best. I was just going to say, Ryan, give yourself a little bit of grace. You know, God, God has grace for you. Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, thank you. That's kind of like dynamic, though, because God calls for perfection, and then we are not able to bring it. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it all comes down to grace. Right, and ultimately, uh, the perfect sacrifice is Christ, who's accepted in our stead. Um, and so that's why we can just bring what we have, and God accepts it because Christ has already satisfied everything we'd ever need to give. And so we're freed actually to give something that's imperfect, but it's what we have to bring the gifts that God's actually given us to, as an offering. That's it. It's an offering. I think, too, I think kiddos have a way of revealing who we are a lot of times as well. In the sense of looking at it, and I think a lot of times we, we confine worship to the idea of what we do here on Sunday, which is corporate worship, which is a coming together once a week. But then looking and saying, but the preparation for that or how that bleeds into every moment of the week. 
I think uh, one of my sons at one time showed me this this comic, and it had the parents at home, and there was all this, you know, before a service, and then you see the parents greeting at church, blessings, blessing, and the kid is going, you know, this this question mark over his head, and I think. I think we look at that and it, it means to impress on us also that part of our best is how we are doing with our relationship with the Lord during the week so that when we're coming to church, it's not a 180 degree shift in the way that we have to think. Thanks everyone. Good thoughts there. Yeah. Okay, verse 9, uh, back page there. This is... Uh, in a sense, a sarcastic response from the priests. They responding saying, but God is saying this is what they're saying. Now, entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. This is what the priests are thinking. We want God to be gracious to us. We'll just ask God to be gracious. But God says, while this lame worship is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. We ought not God to accept our worship favorably, uh, when we're coming um, in sin and willfully not giving him his due. And it goes so far in verse 10 is that God would say, who is there among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle on my, a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord. Like seriously, when, if a church is full of people only giving God the motions and not the true heart, God says it's better to go shut the doors <laughs> of that church and lock it up that no one comes in here and strikes up the band in vain. Because God does not have pleasure in formal worship. Just being a churchgoer does not uh, bring God pleasure. It's being a worshiper, a true worshiper of the Lord. He says, I won't accept an offering from your hands in this case. And here's the point. This goes back to our theme of the fear of the Lord. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, all day and everywhere... My name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord. This is a prophecy of the new covenant. Israel failed to give God his due worship that would bring him honor in the sight of the nations. And so God's call, at the book of Acts, we've been seeing this, that God's name to every tribe and tongue, that his name would be seen as great, and that all peoples would worship him. That famous line by John Piper, that missions exists because worship doesn't. We want to see God's worship spread throughout the world. And this prophecy here really is just our echo of the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, that God's name would be hallowed, would be seen as sacred, would be taken seriously by every people group, that they will offer incense to him. That's an old covenant language referring to, Um, metaphorically to our praise, to our prayers, to offer God the prayers of his people everywhere, that his name would be seen as great among all the nations of the earth. That's what every Christian wants, that everyone will know how high and beautiful the name of Jesus is. Uh, But then he returns to this worship issue. You profane it and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. We kind of talked about that already. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. Uh, this is scary because sometimes I feel a little weary in worship. It's like, ah, oh, a bit tired, got to go to church again. Like, hopefully you can get home, get a nap. Or even like, oh, like, it's a nice evening. It's like, oh, Julie, I know you and I should probably, like, read a bit of scripture and pray. But I would really just want to 
cuddle up and watch a movie tonight. We feel weariness in worship often, and that's something we need to just ask for God's help with, repent of. And just this idea, even especially to watch this in children, um, with this attitude of church is boring, worship is boring, uh, we don't want that to be uh, God's reputation even among the world. I was watching an interview this week with a uh, prominent artist who became a Christian, and the person that was interviewing him was saying, basically, he's like, you've made church fun because everyone knows, nobody likes going to church, everybody knows church is boring. And I was like, oh, that is the world's perception of our worship, that we go because we, like, God will be mad if we don't, but obviously we're not going to enjoy it or get anything out of it. Uh, let's try to change that perception. You know, when someone asks you on Monday at work, how was your weekend? Can we say, I enjoyed worshiping God this weekend? Is that even like a thing that would cross our mind is what was good about our weekend? Or was, is Saturday the more interesting day than Sunday for us? Again, you bring the stolen, the lame, the sick, you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Uh, you make a vow to the church, even maybe if you've been a church member, but if you're not going to be a true church member who truly worships, that's hypocrisy and formalism, and we want to be on guard against that. And again, this is that theme, and this is the theme of that book again, the end of verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name is to be feared among the nations. God wants his name to be taken seriously, He wants it to be regarded highly because he is a great king. God's more than just a governor that might come and visit us. God is the great king who deserves the highest and the best. And just in in this last minute here, um, just as we hear this call that we are called to bring our best to God and we know how much we fall short, we are thankful that Christ covers all our lack of worship all our breaking of the first and second commandments to give God the worship that is due. Um, Christ covers that, and God accepts our feeble sacrifices. Um, But just the actual last thought is, um, when we're talking about taking God seriously and taking worship seriously, this is the theme of reverence, which I know gets talked about probably more in our Reformed churches than in others. That's always our big thing. We believe in reverent worship. But I just want us to remember that Reverent does not equal formal. Formal and reverent are not synonyms. Um, when we're talking about reverence, the opposite is uh, casualness. It's taking God's worship as a light thing, as a frothy thing, as a whatever thing that we can kind of engage whoever we want, do whatever we want. And you can be in an informal setting that's very serious. If you get into like a small club in a school, kids go and maybe they want to talk about some particular type of music they like, and they're engaged and intense. They take it very seriously, but yet it may be a totally informal atmosphere. And the problem is a lot of us think that because we do something that seems formal, like, you know, we dress up a little bit for church, here maybe less than others, we stand and sit at the right time, because it's formal, then that means we're taking God seriously and being reverent. That does not necessarily mean that at all. You can be totally formal, but totally casual in your heart towards God. Totally okay to zone out, even if you look like you're zoned in. So let's not make that um, error of equating reverence with formalness, but let's watch against casualness in our hearts, that we think we can just come and 
If we want to participate and engage in worship, whatever. If we don't want to, we don't. Let's take God really seriously because he has been serious about saving us, serious about redeeming us. He paid uh, Christ's precious blood shed to buy us that we would truly be his beloved and precious people. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so high, so holy, and you deserve so much more than we could ever give you. You deserve our whole lives. You deserve all our obedience, all our worship, all our attention. And Lord, we do desire that you would have it because you deserve it. We desire that you would have the worship of the nations. But Lord, we see the coldness in our own hearts. We see how often we take your worship casually. How often we feel worship is a weariness and what you've called us to is difficult and tiring. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for our um, lack of fearing you, for uh, the lightness with which we take you. And we ask that you will give in our hearts a true fear of God, a childlike reverence that sees you as our great king who's also near to us, um, a God who loves us. And would we live before you as beloved children seeking to do the will of their father? So forgive us, God, for our light worship and help us to be true worshipers that worship in such a way that permeates our whole life that the watching world would see that you are our joy and delight and we take seriously what it means to be a Christian and to live in the way you've called us to. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.